My dear brethren, I truly rejoice with you in this spiritual experience tonight. Thank you. Sixty-five years ago, shortly after World War II, I experienced firsthand the blessings of the welfare program of the Church. Even though I was a young child, I still remember the sweet taste of canned peaches with cooked wheat and the special smell of the donated clothing sent to the post-war German saints by caring Church members from the United States. I will never forget and I will always cherish these acts of love and kindness to those of us who were in great need. This personal experience and the 75th anniversary of the Inspired Welfare Plan give me reason to reflect again on the basic principles of caring for the poor and needy, becoming self-reliant, and serving our fellow man. Sometimes we see welfare as simply another gospel topic, one of the many branches of the gospel tree. But I believe that in the Lord's plan, our commitment to welfare principles should be at the very root of our faith and devotion to Him. Since the beginning of time, our Heavenly Father has spoken with great clarity on this subject. From the gentle plea, If thou lovest me, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support. To the direct command, Remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted, for he that doth not these things, the same is not my disciple. To the very forceful warning, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. The two great commandments to love God and our neighbor are a joining of the temporal and the spiritual. It is important to note that these two commandments are called great because every other commandment hangs upon them. In other words, our personal, family, and church priorities must begin here. All other goals and actions should spring from the fountain of these two great commandments, from our love for God and for our neighbor. Like two sides of a coin, the temporal and spiritual are inseparable. The giver of all life has proclaimed, All things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. This means to me that spiritual life is first of all a life. It is not merely something to be known and studied. It is to be lived. Unfortunately, there are those who overlook the temporal because they consider it less important. They treasure the spiritual while minimizing the temporal. While it is important to have our thoughts inclined toward heaven, we miss the essence of our religion if our hands are not also inclined toward
toward our fellow man. For example, Enoch built a science society through the spiritual process of creating a people of one heart and one mind and the temporal work of ensuring that there were no poor among them. As always, we can look to our perfect example, Jesus Christ, for a pattern. As President J. Reuben Clark taught, when the Savior came upon the earth, he had two great missions. One was to work out the Messiahship, the atonement for the fall, and the fulfillment of the law. The other was the work which he did among his brethren and sisters in the flesh by way of relieving their sufferings. In a very similar way, our spiritual progress is inseparably bound together with the temple service we give to others. The one complements the other. The one without the other is a counterfeit of God's plan of happiness. There are many good people and organizations in the world that are trying to meet the pressing needs of the poor and needy everywhere. We are grateful for this. But the Lord's way of caring for the needy is different from the world's way. The Lord has said, it must needs be done in mine own way. He's not interested only in our immediate needs. He's concerned about our eternal progression. For this reason, the Lord's way has always included self-reliance and service to our neighbor in addition to care for the poor. In 1941, the Gila River overflowed and flooded Duncan Valley in Arizona. A young state president by the name of Spencer W. Kimball met with his counselors, assessed the damage, and sent a telegram to Salt Lake City asking for a large sum of money. Instead of sending money, President Heber J. Grant sent three men, Henry D. Moyle, Marion G. Romney, and Harold B. Lee. They visited with President Kimball and taught him an important lesson. This isn't a program of give me, they said. This is a program of self-help. Many years later, President Kimball said, it would have been an easy thing, I think, for the brethren to have sent us the money, and it wouldn't have been too hard to sit in my office and distribute it. But what a lot of good came to us as we had hundreds of our own go to Duncan and build fences and haul the hay and level the ground and do all the things that needed doing. That is self-help. By following the Lord's way, the members of President Kimball's stake not only had their immediate needs met, but they also developed self-reliance, alleviated suffering, and grew in love and unity as they served each other. This very hour, there are many members of the Church who are suffering. They are hungry, stretched financially, and struggling with all manner of physical, emotional, and spiritual distress. 
They pray with all the energy of their souls for succor, for relief. Brethren, please do not think that this is someone else's responsibility. It is mine and it is yours. We are all enlisted. All means all. Every Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood holder, rich and poor, in every nation around the globe. In the Lord's plan, there is something everyone can contribute. The lesson we learn generation after generation is that rich and poor are all under the same sacred obligation to help their neighbor. It will take all of us working together to successfully apply the principles of welfare and self-reliance. Too often, we notice the needs around us and are hoping that someone from far away will magically appear to meet those needs. Perhaps we wait for experts with specialized knowledge to solve specific problems. When we do this, we deprive our neighbor of the service we could render, and we deprive ourselves of the opportunity to serve. While there's nothing wrong with experts, let's face it, there will never be enough of them to solve all the problems. Instead, the Lord has placed his priesthood and its organization at our doorsteps all around the globe in every nation where the Church is established. And right by its side, he has placed the Relief Society. As we priesthood holders know, no welfare effort is successful if it fails to make use of the remarkable gifts and talents of our sisters. The Lord's way is not to sit at the side of the stream and wait for the water to pass before we cross. It is to come together, roll up our sleeves, go to work, and build a bridge or boat to cross the waters of our challenges. You men of sign, you priesthood holders, are the ones who can lead out and bring relief to the saints by applying the inspired principles of the welfare program. It is your mission to open your eyes, use your priesthood, and go to work in the Lord's way. During the Great Depression, Harold B. Lee, serving then as a stake president, was asked by the Brethren to find an answer to the oppressive poverty, sorrow, and hunger that were so widespread across the world at that time. He struggled to find a solution and took the matter to the Lord and asked, What kind of an organization will we have to do this? And it was as though the Lord has said to him, Look, son, you don't need any other organization. I have given you the greatest organization there is on the face of the earth. Nothing is greater than the priesthood organization. All in the world you need to do is to put the priesthood to work. That's all. That is the starting point in our time as well. 
We already have the Lord's organization in place. Our challenge is determining how to use it. The place to begin is to familiarize ourselves with what the Lord has already revealed. We should not assume that we know. We need to approach the subject with the humility of a child. Every generation must learn anew the doctrines that undergird the Lord's way of caring for the needy. As many prophets have instructed us over the years, the welfare principles of the Church are not simply good ideas. They are revealed truths from God. They are His way of helping the needy. Brethren, study the revealed principles and doctrines first. Read the handbooks regarding church welfare. Take advantage of the Internet website providentliving.org. Reread the June 2011 Liahona or Ensign article on the Church Welfare Plan. Find out about the Lord's way of providing for His saints. Learn how the principles of care for the needy, service to neighbor, and self-reliance complement each other. The Lord's way of self-reliance involves, in a balanced way, many facets of life, including education, health, employment, family finances, and spiritual strength. Familiarize yourself with the modern welfare program of the Church. Once you have studied the doctrines and principles of the Church-wide welfare plan, Seek to apply what you have learned to the needs of those within your stewardship. What this means is that, in large measure, you are going to have to figure it out for yourself. Every individual, every family, every congregation, every area of the world is different. There is no one-size-fits-all answer in church welfare. You are going to have to chart a course that is consistent with the Lord's doctrine and matches the circumstances of your geographic area. To implement divine welfare principles, you need not look always to Salt Lake City. Instead, you need to look into the handbooks, into your heart and into heaven. Trust the Lord's inspiration and follow His way. In the end, you must do in your area what disciples of Christ have done in every dispensation. Counsel together. Use all resources available. Seek the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Ask the Lord for His confirmation. And then roll up your sleeves and go to work. I give you a promise, if you will follow this pattern, you will receive specific guidance as to who, what, when, and where of providing in the Lord's way. The prophetic promises and blessings of Church welfare, of providing in the Lord's way, are some of the most magnificent and sublime the Lord has pronounced upon His children. He said, 
If thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually. Whether we are rich or poor, regardless where we live on this globe, we all need each other. For it is in sacrificing our time, talents, and resources that our spirits mature and become refined. This work of providing in the Lord's way is not simply another item in the catalog of programs of the Church. It cannot be neglected or set aside. It is central to our doctrine. It is the essence of our religion. Brethren, it is our great and special privilege as priesthood holders to put the priesthood to work. We must not turn aside our hearts or our heads from becoming more self-reliant, caring better for the needy, and rendering compassionate service. The temporal is intertwined with the spiritual. God has given us this mortal experience and the temporal challenges that attend it as a laboratory where we can grow into the beings Heavenly Father wants us to become. May we understand the great duty and blessing that come from following and providing in the Lord's way is my prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Years ago, my great-great-grandfather picked up a copy of the Book of Mormon for the first time. He opened it to the center and read a few pages. He then declared, That book was either written by the God or the devil, and I'm going to find out who wrote it. He read it through twice in the next ten days and then declared, The devil could not have written it. It must be from God. That is the genius of the Book of Mormon. There is no middle ground. It is either the Word of God as professed or it is a total fraud. This book does not merely claim to be a moral treatise or theological commentary or collection of insightful writings. It claims to be the Word of God, every sentence, every verse, every page. Joseph Smith declared that an angel of God directed him to gold plates which contained the writings of prophets in ancient America and that he translated those plates by divine powers. If that story is true, then the Book of Mormon is Holy Scripture just as it professes to be. If not, it is a sophisticated but nonetheless diabolic hoax. C.S. Lewis spoke of a similar dilemma faced by someone who must choose whether to accept or reject the Savior's divinity, where there is likewise no middle ground. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to." Likewise, we must make a simple choice with the Book of Mormon. 
It is either of God or the devil. There is no other option. For a moment, I invite you to take a test that will help you determine the true nature of this book. Ask yourself of the following scriptures from the Book of Mormon draw you closer to God or to the devil. Feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Or these words of a loving father to his sons. And now, my sons, remember, remember, that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. Or these words of a prophet, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Could these statements from the Book of Mormon have possibly been authored by the evil one? After the Savior cast out certain devils, the Pharisees claimed that he did so by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. The Savior responded that such a conclusion was nonsensical. Every kingdom, he said, divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself shall not stand. And then his compelling climax. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? If the foregoing scriptures from the Book of Mormon teach us to worship and love and serve the Savior, which they do, how can they be from the devil? If so, he would be divided against himself and thus be destroying his own kingdom, the very condition the Savior said could not exist. An honest, unbiased reading of the Book of Mormon will bring someone to the same conclusion as my great-great-grandfather, namely, the devil could not have written it. It must be from God. But why is the Book of Mormon so essential if we already have the Bible to teach us about Jesus Christ? Have you ever wondered why there are so many Christian churches in the world today when they obtain their doctrines from essentially the same Bible? It is because they interpret the Bible differently. If they interpreted it the same, they would be the same church. This is not a condition the Lord desires. For the Apostle Paul declared that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. To help bring this oneness about, the Lord established a divine law of witnesses. Paul taught, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The Bible is one witness of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon is another. Why is this second witness so crucial? The following illustration may help. How many straight lines can you draw through a single point on a piece of paper? The answer is infinite. For a moment, suppose that single point represents the Bible, and that hundreds of those straight lines drawn through that point represent different interpretations of the Bible, and that each of those interpretations represents a different church. What happens, however, if on that piece of paper there is a second point representing the Book of Mormon? How many straight lines could you draw between these two reference points, the Bible and the Book of Mormon? Only one. Only one interpretation of Christ's doctrine survives the testimony of these two witnesses. Again and again, the Book of Mormon acts as a confirming, clarifying, unifying witness of the doctrines taught in the Bible. So there is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. For example, some people are confused as to whether baptism is essential for salvation. Even though the Savior declared to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Book of Mormon, however, eliminates all doubt on that subject. Quote, 
And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Close quote. There exist various modes of baptism in the world today, even though the Bible tells us the manner in which our Savior, our great exemplar, was baptized. He went up straightway out of the water. Could he have come up out of the water unless he first went down into the water? Lest there be any discord on this subject, the Book of Mormon dispels it with a straightforward statement of doctrine as to the proper manner of baptism, and then shall ye immerse them in the water. Many believe that revelation ended with the Bible, even though the Bible itself is a testimony of God's revelatory pattern over 4,000 years of man's existence. But one incorrect doctrine such as this is like a domino set in motion that causes the fall of other dominoes, or in this case, the fall of correct doctrines. A belief in the cessation of revelation causes the doctrine that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever to fall. It causes the doctrine taught by Amos that surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets, to fall. And it causes the doctrine that God is no respecter of persons and thus speaks to all men of all ages to fall. But fortunately, the Book of Mormon re-enthrones the biblical truth of continuous revelation. And again, I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God and say they are done away, that there are no revelations. Do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? In other words, if God, who is unchangeable, spoke in ancient times, he will likewise speak in modern times. The list of doctrinal confirmations and clarifications goes on and on, but none is more powerful nor poignant than the Book of Mormon's discourses on the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Would you like to have emblazoned on your soul an undeniable witness that the Savior descended beneath your sins and that there is no sin, no mortal plight outside the merciful reach of His Atonement, that for each of your struggles He has a remedy of superior healing power? Then read the Book of Mormon. It will teach you and testify to you that Christ's Atonement is infinite because it circumscribes and encompasses and transcends every finite frailty known to man. That is why the Prophet Mormon declared, Ye shall have hope through the Atonement of Christ. No wonder the Book of Mormon proclaims with boldness, And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ. Together with the Bible, the Book of Mormon is an indispensable witness of the doctrines of Christ and His divinity. Together with the Bible, it teaches all men that they should do good. And together with the Bible, it brings us to one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That is why the Book of Mormon is so crucial in our lives. Some years ago, I attended one of our worship services in Toronto, Canada. A 14-year-old girl was the speaker. She said that she had been discussing religion with one of her friends at school. Her friend said to her, What religion do you belong to? She replied, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Her friend replied, I know that church and I know it's not true. How do you know, came the reply. Because, said her friend, I've researched it. Have you read the Book of Mormon? No, came the answer, I haven't. Then this sweet young girl responded, then you haven't researched my church because I've read every page of the Book of Mormon and I know it's true. I too have read every page 
of the Book of Mormon again and again. And I bear my solemn witness, like my great-great-grandfather, it is from God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On this Sabbath morning, I join with President Eileen and give thanks for the testimony of the living reality of our Savior. His gospel has been restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon is true. We are led by a living prophet today, President Thomas S. Monson. Above all, we bear solemn witness of the Atonement of Jesus Christ and the eternal blessings that flow from it. During the past few months, I have had the opportunity to study and learn more about the Savior's atoning sacrifice and how He prepared Himself to make that eternal offering for each one of us. His preparation began in pre-mortal life as He waited upon His Father, saying, Thy will be done, and the glory will be Thine forever. Beginning in that moment and continuing today, He exercises His agency to accept and carry out our Father's plan. The scriptures teach us that through His youth He went about His Father's business and waited upon the Lord for the time of His ministry to come. At the age of 30, He suffered sore temptation, yet chose to resist, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. In Gethsemane, He trusted His Father, declaring, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, and then exercised His agency to suffer for our sins. Through the humiliation of a public trial and the agony of crucifixion, He waited upon His Father, willing to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Even as He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? He waited upon His Father, exercising His agency to forgive His, to forgive his enemies, watch over His mother, and endure to the end until His life and mortal mission were finished. I have often pondered, why is it that the Son of God and His holy prophets and all the faithful saints have trials and tribulations, even when they are trying to do Heavenly Father's will? Why is it so hard, especially for them? I think about Joseph Smith, who suffered illness as a boy and persecution throughout his life. Like the Savior, he cried out, O God, where art thou? Yet even when he was seemingly alone, he exercised his agency to wait upon the Lord and carry out his Heavenly Father's will. 
like the Savior. I think of our pioneer forebears, driven from Nauvoo and crossing the plains, exercising their agency to follow a prophet even as they suffered sickness, privation, and even death. Why such terrible tribulation? To what end? For what purpose? As we ask these questions, we realize the purpose of our life on earth is to grow, develop, and be strengthened through our own experiences. How do we do this? The scriptures give us an answer in one simple phrase. We wait upon the Lord. Tests and trials are given to all of us. These mortal challenges allow us and our Heavenly Father to see whether we will exercise our agency to follow His Son. He already knows, and we have the opportunity to learn that no matter how difficult our circumstance, all these things shall be for our experience and for our good. Does this mean we always understand our challenges? Won't all of us sometime have reason to ask, O God, where art thou? Yes, when a spouse dies, a companion may wonder, when financial hardship befalls a family, a father will ask. When children wander from the path, a mother and a father will cry out in sorrow. Yes, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Then in the dawn of our increased faith and understanding, we arise, choose to wait upon the Lord, saying, Thy will be done. What then does it mean to wait upon the Lord? In the scriptures, the word wait means to hope, to anticipate, and to trust. To hope and trust in the Lord requires faith, patience, humility, meekness, long-suffering, keeping the commandments, and enduring to the end. To wait upon the Lord means planting the seed of faith and nourishing it with great diligence and patience. It means praying as the Savior did to God, our Heavenly Father, saying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. It is a prayer we offer with our whole souls in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting upon the Lord means pondering in our hearts and receiving the Holy Ghost so that we can know that all things, what we should do. As we follow the promptings of the Spirit, we discover the tribulation work of patience, and we learn to continue in patience until we are perfected. Waiting upon the Lord means to stand fast, to press forward in faith, having a perfect brightness of hope. 
It means relying alone upon the merits of Christ and with his grace assisting us, saying, Thy will be done, O Lord, and not ours. As we wait upon the Lord, we are immovable in keeping the commandments, knowing that we will one day rest from all our afflictions. And we cast not away our confidence that all things wherewith we have been afflicted shall work together for our good. Those afflictions will come in all shapes and sizes. Job's experience reminds us what we may be called upon to endure. Job lost all his possessions, including his land, house, and animals, his family members as well, his reputation, his physical health, and even his mental well-being. Yet he waited upon the Lord and bore a powerful personal testimony. He said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though the worms destroy this body, yet my flesh, in my flesh shall I see God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even with the shining examples of Job, the prophets and the Savior, we still find it challenging to wait upon the Lord, especially when we cannot fully understand his plan and his purposes for us. That understanding is most often given line upon line and precept upon precept. In my life, I have learned that sometimes I do not receive an answer to prayer because the Lord knows I am not ready. When he does answer, it is often here a little and there a little because that is all I can bear or all that I am willing to do. Too often we pray to have patience, but we want it right now. As a young man, President David O. McKay prayed for a witness of the truthfulness of the gospel. He was in a field as a young boy, and many years later, while he was serving his mission in Scotland, that witness finally came. Later, he wrote, It was an assurance to me that sincere prayer is answered sometime, somewhere. We may not know when or how the Lord's answers will be given, but in His time and in His way, I testify His answers will come. For some answers, we may have to wait until the hereafter. This may be true for some promises in our patriarchal blessings or from blessings for our family members. Let us not give up on the Lord. His blessings are eternal, not temporary. Waiting upon the Lord gives us a priceless opportunity to discover that there are many who wait upon us. Our children wait upon us to show patience, love, and understanding toward them. Our parents waited upon us and showed gratitude 
and compassion. Our brothers and sisters wait upon us to be tolerant, merciful, and forgiving. Our spouses wait upon us to love them as the Savior has loved each one of us. As we endure physical suffering, we are increasingly aware how many wait upon each of us. To all the Marys, and Martha's, to all the Good Samaritans who minister to the sick, succor the weak, and care for the mentally and physically infirm, I feel the gratitude of a loving Heavenly Father and His blessed Son. In your daily Christ-like ministry, you are willing to wait upon the Lord, and you are doing our Heavenly Father's will. His assurance to you is clear. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. He knows your sacrifices and your sorrows. He hears your prayers. His peace and rest will be yours as you continue to wait upon him in faith. Every one of us is more beloved to the Lord than we can possibly understand or imagine. Let us, therefore, be kinder to one another and even kinder to ourselves. Let us remember that as we wait upon the Lord, we are becoming saints through his atonement, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, even as a child doth submit to his father. Such was the submission of our Savior to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He implored his disciples, Watch with me. Yet three times he returned to them to find their eyes heavy with sleep. Without the companionship of these disciples, and ultimately without the presence of his Father, the Savior chose to suffer our pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. With an angel sent to strengthen him, the Savior did not shrink, but drank the bitter cup. He waited upon his Father, saying, Thy will be done, and he humbly trod the winepress alone. Now, as one of the twelve apostles, in these latter days, I pray that we will be strengthened to watch with him and wait upon him through all our days. On this Sabbath morning, I express gratitude that in my Gethsemane and in yours we are not alone. He that watches over us shall neither slumber nor sleep. His angels are here and beyond the veil and round about us to bear us up. I bear my special witness that his promise is true, for he says, They wait upon the Lord and shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.
May we wait upon him by pressing forward in faith that we may say in our prayers, Thy will be done, and return to him with honor in the holy name of our Savior and Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I am grateful for this opportunity to speak to you on this Sabbath in a general conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Every member of the Church has the same sacred charge. We accepted it and promised to rise to it as we were baptized. We learn from the words of Alma, the great Book of Mormon prophet, what we promised God that we would become willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that you may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. That is a lofty charge and a glorious promise from God. My message today is of encouragement, just as the Book of Mormon makes the charge plain to us. It also directs us upward on the path to eternal life. First, we have promised to become charitable. Second, we promise to become witnesses of God. And third, we promise to endure. The Book of Mormon is the best guide to learn how well we are doing and how to do better. Let's begin with becoming charitable. I will remind you of recent experiences. Many of you participated in a day of service. There were thousands of them organized across the world. A council of your fellow saints prayed to know what service to plan. They asked God to know what we should, who we should serve, what service to give, and who to invite to participate. They may even have prayed not to forget shovels or drinking water. Above all, they prayed that all who gave service and all who received it would feel the love of God. I know those prayers were answered in at least one ward. More than 120 members volunteered to help. In three hours, they transformed the grounds of a church in our community. It was hard and happy work. The ministers of the Church expressed gratitude. All who worked together that day felt unity and greater love. And some even said they felt joy as they pulled weeds and trimmed shrubbery. Words from the Book of Mormon helped them know why they felt that joy. It was King Benjamin who said to his people, quote, Learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are in the service of your God. Close quote. And it was Mormon who taught in the words of the Book of Mormon, Charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. 
and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. The Lord is keeping his promise to you as you keep yours. As you serve others for him, he lets you feel his love. And in times, feelings of charity become part of your very nature. And you will receive the assurance of Mormon in your heart as you persist in serving others in life that all will be well with you. Just as you promise God to become charitable, you promise to be His witness wherever you may be throughout your life. Again, the Book of Mormon is the best guide I know to help us keep that promise. I was once invited to speak at graduation services at a university. The President had wanted President Gordon B. Hinckley to be invited, but found that he was unavailable. So, by default, I got the invitation. <laughs> I was then a junior member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The person who invited me to speak became anxious as she learned more about my obligations as an apostle. She called me on the phone and said that she now understood that my duty was to be a witness of Jesus Christ. In very firm tones, she told me, though I could not do that when I spoke there. She explained that the university respected people of all religious beliefs, including those who denied the existence of a God. She repeated, you cannot fulfill your duty here. I'm only being emotional because I was emotional when I heard that. You cannot fulfill your duty here. I hung up the phone with serious questions in my mind. Should I tell the university that I would not keep my agreement to speak? It was only two weeks before the event. My appearance there had been announced. What effect would my failing to keep my agreement have on the good name of the Church? I prayed to know what God would have me do. The answer came in a surprising way to me. I realized that the examples of Nephi, Abinadi, Alma, Amalek, and the sons of Mosiah had become what I was. They were bold witnesses of Jesus Christ in the face of deadly peril. So the only choice to be made was how to prepare. I dug into everything I could learn about the university. As the day of the talk grew closer, my anxiety rose and my prayers intensified. Like the Red Sea parting, I found a news article. That university had been honored for doing what the Church has learned to do in our humanitarian efforts across the world. And so in my talk, I described what we and they had done to lift people in great need. I said that I knew that Jesus Christ was the source of the blessings that had come into the lives of those we and they had served. After the meeting, the audience rose to applaud, which seemed a little unusual to me. <laughs> I was amazed but still a little anxious. I remembered what happened to Abinadi.
Only Alma had accepted his witness. But that night, at a large formal dinner, I heard the university president say that in my talk, he heard the words of God. Now, such a miraculous deliverance is rare in my experience as a witness of Christ. But the effect of the Book of Mormon on your character, power, and courage to be a witness for God is certain. The doctrine and the valiant examples in that book will lift, guide, and embolden you. Every missionary who is proclaiming the name and gospel of Jesus Christ will be blessed by daily feasting from the Book of Mormon. Parents who struggle to get a witness of the Savior into the heart of a child will be helped as they seek for a way to bring the words and the spirit of the Book of Mormon into the home and all the lives in their family. That has proven true for us. I can see that miracle is happening in every sacrament meeting and every class I attend in the Church. Speakers and teachers show a love and mature understanding of the Scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon. And personal testimonies clearly come from deep within their hearts. They teach with increased conviction and bear witness with power. I see evidence as well that we are doing better in the third part of the promise we all made at baptism. We covenant to endure to keep the commandments of God as long as we live. I visited the hospital room with an old friend who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I took with me my two young daughters. I did not expect that she would even be able to recognize them. Her own family were gathered standing around her bed as we entered. She looked up and smiled. I will always remember her look as she saw that we had brought our daughters with us. She motioned them to come close to her on the bed. She sat up, held them, and introduced them to her family. She spoke of the greatness of those two little girls. It was as if she was presenting princesses to a royal court. I expected our visit to end quickly. Surely I thought she is tired. But as I watched, it was as if the years melted away. She was radiant and obviously filled with love for all of us. She seemed to savor the moment as if time had stopped. She had spent most of her life succoring children for the Lord. She knew from the account in the Book of Mormon that the resurrected Savior had taken little children one by one, blessed them, and then wept for joy. She had experienced that joy long enough herself to be able to endure in His loving service to the end. I saw that same miracle in the bedroom of a man who had given sufficient faithful service to think that he had done enough to rest. I knew that he had undergone lengthy and painful, painful treatment for a disease and been told by the doctors that it was terminal. They offered neither 
treatment nor hope. His wife took me to his bedroom in their room in their home. There he was lying on his back on the top of the carefully made-up bed. He wore a freshly pressed white shirt, a tie, and new shoes. He saw the look of surprise in my eyes, laughed quietly, and explained, After you give me a blessing, I want to be ready to respond to the call to take up my bed and go to work. <laughs> As it turned out, he was ready for the interview he would soon have with the master. with a master for whom he had worked so faithfully. He was an example of the fully converted Latter-day Saints I meet often after they have given a life of dedicated service they press on. President Marion G. Romney described it this way, in one who is wholly converted, desire for things contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ has actually died and substitute, therefore, is a love of God with a fixed and controlling determination to keep His commandments." Close quote. It is that fixed determination I see more and more often in the seasoned disciples of Jesus Christ. Like the sister greeting my daughters and the man in the new shoes ready to get up and march, they follow the Savior's command to the end. All of you have seen it. You can look at it again if you return to the Book of Mormon. I still feel admiration in my heart when I read these words of an aging and determined servant of God, quote, For even at this time my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while attempting to speak unto you. But the Lord doth support me and has suffered me that I should speak unto you, close quote. You can take courage, as I do, from the example of endurance given us by Moroni. He was alone in his ministry. He knew the end of life was near for him. And yet, listen to what the, he wrote. For the sake of people not yet born and the descendants of his mortal enemies, quote, yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by His grace you may be perfect in Christ. Moroni gave that witness as the valedictory to his life and ministry. He urged charity, as do the prophets throughout the Book of Mormon. He added his witness of the Savior when death loomed before him. He was a truly converted child of God, as we can be, filled with charity, constant and fearless as a witness of the Savior and His gospel and determined to endure to the end. Moroni taught us what that requires of us. He said that the first step is full conversion to full conversion is faith. Prayerful study of the Book of Mormon will build faith in God the Father, in His beloved Son, and in His gospel. It will build your faith in God's prophets, ancient and modern. It can draw you closer to God than any other book. It can change a life for the better. I urge you to do what a missionary companion of mine did. He had run away from home as a teenager, and someone had placed a Book of Mormon in a box he carried with him in his search for more happiness. Years passed. He moved from place to place across the world. 
He was alone and unhappy one day when he saw the box. The box was filled with things he had carried with him. At the bottom of the box, he found the Book of Mormon. He read the promise in it and tested it. He knew it was true. That witness changed his life. He found happiness beyond his fondest dreams. Your copy of the Book of Mormon may be hidden from your view by cares and attention to all you have accumulated in your journey. I plead with you to drink deeply and often from its pages. It has in it the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only way home to God. I leave you my sure witness that God lives and will answer your prayers. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The Book of Mormon is a true and sure witness that He lives, that He is our resurrected and living Savior. The Book of Mormon is a precious witness which I now leave with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren, it's a tremendous privilege to be with you tonight. This place is full. (laughs) We who hold the priesthood of God form a great bond and brotherhood. We read in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, verse 36, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. Close quote. What a wonderful gift we've been given to hold the priesthood, which is inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. This precious gift, however, brings with it not only special blessings, but also solemn responsibilities. We must conduct our lives so that we are ever worthy of the priesthood we bear. We live in a time when we're surrounded by much that is intended to entice us into paths which lead to our destruction. To avoid such paths requires determination and courage. I recall a time, and some of you here tonight will also, when the standards of most people were very similar to our standards. No longer is this true. I recently read an article in the New York Times concerning a study which took place during the summer of 2008. A distinguished Notre Dame sociologist led a research team in conducting in-depth interviews with 230 young adults across America. I believe we can safely assume that the results would be similar in most parts of the world. I share with you just a portion of this very telling article, and I quote, The interviewers asked open-ended questions about right and wrong, moral dilemma, and the meaning of life. In the rambling answers, you see, the young people groping to say anything sensible on these matters, but they just don't have the categories of vocabulary to do so. When asked to describe a moral dilemma they had faced, two-thirds of the young people either couldn't answer the question or describe problems that are not moral at all, like whether they could afford to rent a certain apartment 
whether they had enough porters to feed the meter at the parking spot. The article continues, and I quote, the default position, which most of them came back to again and again, is that moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. It's personal, the respondents simply said. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say? Rejecting blind deference to authority, many of the young people have gone off the extreme, saying, I would do what I thought made me happy or how I felt. I have no other way of knowing what to do but how I internally feel, close quote. Those who conducted the interviews emphasized that the majority of the young people with whom they spoke had not been given the resources by schools, institutions, or families to cultivate their moral intuitions, close quote. Brethren, none within the sound of my voice should be in any doubt concerning what is moral and what is not, nor should they be in doubt about what's expected of us as holders of the priesthood of God. We have been and continue to be taught God's laws, despite what you may see or hear elsewhere. These laws are unchanging. As we go about living from day to day, it's almost inevitable that our faith will be challenged. <clears throat> we may at times find ourselves surrounded by others, and yet standing in the minority, or even standing alone concerning what is acceptable and what is not. Do we have the moral courage to stand firm for our beliefs, even if by so doing we must stand alone? As holders of the priesthood of God, it is essential that we are able to face with courage whatever challenges come our way. Remember the words of Tennyson, quote, My strength is as a strength of ten, because my heart is pure, close quote. Increasingly, some celebrities and others who, for one reason or another, are in the public eye, have a tendency to ridicule religion in general, and at times, the Church in particular. If our testimonies are not firmly enough rooted, such criticism can cause us to doubt our own beliefs or to waver in our resolve. In Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life, found in 1 Nephi chapter 8, Lehi sees, among others, those who hold to the iron rod until they come forth and partake of the fruit of the Tree of Life which we know is representation of the love of God. And then, sadly, after they partake of the fruit, some are ashamed because of those in the great and spacious building who represent the pride of the children of men, who are pointing fingers at them and scoffing at them, and they fall away into forbidden paths and are lost. What a powerful tool of the adversary is ridicule and mockery. Again, brethren, do we have the courage to stand strong and firm in the face of such difficult opposition? I believe my first experience at having the courage of my convictions 
took place when I served in the United States Navy near the end of World War II. Navy boot camp was not an easy experience for me, nor for anyone who endured it. For the first three weeks, I was convinced my life was in jeopardy. The Navy wasn't trying to train me. It was trying to kill me. <clears throat> I shall ever remember when Sunday rolled around after the first week, we received welcome news from the chief petty officer. Standing at attention on the drill ground in a brisk California breeze, we heard his command. Today, everybody goes to church. Everybody, that is, except for me. I'm going to relax. Then he shouted, all of you Catholics, you meet in Camp Decatur. Don't come back until 3 o'clock. Forward march. A rather sizable contingent moved out. Then he barked out his next command. Those of you who are Jewish, you meet in Camp Henry. Don't come back until 3 o'clock. Forward march. A somewhat smaller contingent marched out. Then he said, the rest of you Protestants, you meet in the theaters at Camp Farragut. Don't come back until 3 o'clock. Forward march. Instantly, there flashed through my mind the thought, Monson, you're not a Catholic. You're not a Jew. You're not a Protestant. You're a Mormon. So you just stand here. <laughs> I'm glad to be alive today. <laughs> <clears throat> I can assure you that I felt completely alone. Courageous, determined, yes, but alone. And then I heard the sweetest words I ever heard that chief petty officer utter. He looked in my direction and asked, and just what do you guys call yourselves? Until that very moment, I had not realized that anyone was standing beside me or behind me on the drill ground. Almost in unison, each of us replied, Mormons. <laughs> it is difficult to describe the joy that filled my heart as I turned around as a handful of other sailors. The chief petty officer scratched his head in an expression of puzzlement, but finally said, well, you guys go find somewhere to meet. Don't come back until 3 o'clock. Forward march. As we marched away, I thought of the words of a rhyme I had learned in primary years before. Dare to be a Mormon. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Although the experience turned out differently from what I'd expected, I had been willing to stand alone had such been necessary. Since that day, there have been times when there was no one standing behind me, and so I did stand alone. How grateful I am that I made the decision long ago to remain strong and true, always prepared, and ready to defend my religion should the need arise. Lest we at any time feel inadequate for the tasks ahead of us, Brethren, may I share with you a statement made in 1987 by then-Church President Ezra Taft Benson as he addressed a large group of members in California. Said President Benson, 
In all ages, prophets have looked down through the corridors of time to our day. Billions of the deceased and those yet to be born have their eyes on us. Make no mistakes about it. You are a marked generation. For nearly 6,000 years, God has held you in reserve to make your appearance in the final days before the second coming of the Lord. Some individuals will fall away, but the kingdom of God will remain intact to welcome the return of its head, even Jesus Christ. While this generation will be comparable in wickedness to the days of Noah, when the Lord cleansed the earth by flood, there's a major difference this time. It is God has saved for the final inning some of his strongest children who will help bear off the kingdom triumphantly. Close quote. Yes, brethren, we represent some of his strongest children. Ours is the responsibility to be worthy of all the glorious blessings our Father in heaven has in store for us. Wherever we go, our priesthood goes with us. Are we standing in holy places? Please, before you put yourself and your priesthood in jeopardy by venturing into places of participating in activities which are not worthy of you or of that priesthood, pause to consider the consequences. Each of us has had conferred upon him the Uranic priesthood. In the process, each received the power which holds the keys to the ministering of angels. Said President Gordon B. Hinckley, you cannot afford to do anything that would place a curtain between you and the ministering of angels at your behalf. You cannot be immoral in any sense. You cannot be dishonest. You cannot cheat or lie. You cannot take the name of the Lord in vain or use filthy language and still have the right to the ministering of angels. Close quote. If any of you has stumbled in your journey, I want you to understand without any question whatsoever, there is a way back. There is a way back. The process is called repentance. Our Savior gave His life to provide you and me that blessed gift. Despite the fact that the repentance path is not easy, the promises are real. We've been told, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And I will remember them no more. What a statement. What a blessing. What a promise. There may be those of you who are thinking to yourselves, well, I'm not living all the commandments, but I'm not doing everything I should. And yet my life is going along just fine. I think I can have my cake and eat it, too. <laughs> Brethren, I promise you that this will not work in the long run. Not too many months ago, I received a letter from a man who once thought he could have it both ways. He's now repented 
and has brought his life into compliance with gospel principles and commandments. I want to share with you a paragraph from his letter, for it represents the reality of flawed thinking. And I quote, I've had to learn for myself the hard way that the Savior was absolutely correct when he said no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. I tried, about as hard as anyone ever has, to do both. In the end, said he, I had all of the emptiness, darkness, and loneliness that Satan provides to those who believe his deceptions, his illusions, and his lies. In order for us to be strong and withstand all the forces pulling us in the wrong direction, of all the voices encouraging us to take the wrong path, we must have our own testimony. Whether you are 12 or 112, or anywhere in between, you can know for yourself that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Read the Book of Mormon. Ponder its teachings. Ask humbly, Heavenly Father, if it is true, we have the promise that if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Close quote. When we know the Book of Mormon is true, then it follows that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet, and that he saw God the Eternal Father and His Son Jesus Christ. It also follows that the gospel was restored in these latter days through Joseph Smith, including the restoration of both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood. Once we have a testimony, it is incumbent upon us to share that testimony with others. Many of you brethren have served as missionaries throughout the world. Many of you young men will yet serve. Prepare yourselves now for that opportunity. Make certain you are worthy to serve. If we are prepared to share the gospel, we are ready to respond to the counsel of the Apostle Peter, who urged, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. We will have opportunities throughout our lives to share our beliefs, although we don't always know when we will be called upon to do so. Such an opportunity came to me in 1957 when I worked in the publishing business, was asked to go to Dallas, Texas, sometimes called the City of Churches, to address a business convention. Following the conclusion of the convention, I took a sightseeing bus ride through the city suburbs. As we passed the various churches, our driver would comment, On the left you see the Methodist Church, or there on the right is the Catholic Cathedral. As we passed a beautiful red-brick building situated upon a hill, the driver exclaimed, That building is where the Mormons meet. A lady in the rear of the bus called out, Driver, can you tell us something more about the Mormons? The driver pulled the bus over to the side of the road, turned around in his seat, and replied, Lady, 
All I know about the Mormons is they meet in that red brick building. <laughs> is there anyone on this bus who knows anything more about the Mormons? I waited for someone to respond. <laughs> I gazed at the expression on each person's face for some sign of recognition, some desire to comment. Nothing. I realized it was up to me to do as the Apostle Peter suggested, to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. I also realized the truth of the adage. Boy, did I learn it. When the time for decision arrives, the time for preparation is past. For the next 15 or so minutes, I had the privilege of sharing with those on the bus my testimony concerning the Church and our beliefs. I was grateful for my testimony and grateful that I was prepared to share it. With all my heart and soul, I pray that every man—and I'm looking at many—that every man who holds the priesthood will honor that priesthood and be true to the trust which was conveyed when it was conferred. May each of us who holds the priesthood of God know what he believes. May we ever be courageous and prepared to stand for what we believe, and if we must stand alone in the process, may we do so courageously, strengthened by the knowledge that in reality we are never alone when we stand with our Father in Heaven. As we contemplate the great gift we have been given, the rights of the priesthood, inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, may our determination ever be to guard and defend it and to be worthy of his great promises. Brother, may we follow the Savior's instruction to us found in the book of 3 Nephi. Hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which he shall hold up, that which he hath seen me do, close quote, that we may ever follow that light and hold it up for all the world to see, is my prayer and my blessing upon all who hear my voice in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren, it is a joy for me to be with you in this worldwide meeting of the priesthood of God. Tonight, I will speak of priesthood preparation, both our own and that which we help provide for others. Most of us must wonder ourselves at times, am I prepared for this assignment in the priesthood? My answer is yes you have been prepared. My purpose today is to help you recognize that preparation and draw courage from it. 
As you know, the Aaronic priesthood is designated as a preparatory priesthood. The great majority are young deacons, teachers, and priests between 12 and 19 years of age. We may come to think of priesthood preparation as occurring in the Aaronic priesthood years, but our Heavenly Father has been preparing us since we were taught at His knee in His kingdom before we were born. He is preparing us tonight, and He will continue to prepare us as long as we will let Him. The purpose of all priesthood preparation in the preexistence and in this life is to fit us and those we serve for Him for eternal life. Some of the first lessons in the preexistence surely included the plan of salvation with Jesus Christ and His Atonement at its center. We were not only taught the plan, but were in councils where we chose it. Because a veil of forgetfulness was placed over our minds at birth, we have had to find a way to relearn in this life what we once knew and defended. Part of our preparation in this life has been to find that precious truth so that we can then recommit to it by covenant. That has required faith, humility, and courage on our part, as well as help from people who had found the truth and then shared it with us. It may have been parents or missionaries or friends, but that help was part of our preparation. Our priesthood preparation always includes others who have already been prepared to offer us the opportunity to accept the gospel and then choose to act by keeping covenants to get them down into our hearts. For us to qualify for eternal life, our service in this life must include working with all our heart, might, mind, and strength to prepare others to, to return to God with us. So part of the priesthood preparation we will have in this life will be opportunities to serve and teach others. It may include being teachers in the Church, wise and loving fathers, members of a quorum, and missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will offer the opportunities, but whether we are prepared will depend on us. My intent tonight is to point out some of the crucial choices necessary for priesthood preparation to succeed. Good choices, both by the person training and the one being trained, depend on some understanding of how the Lord prepares His priesthood servants. First, He calls people, young and old, who may appear to worldly eyes and even to themselves to be weak and simple. The Lord can turn those apparent shortcomings into strengths. That will change the way the wise leader chooses who to train and how to train. 
and it can change how the priesthood holder responds to the development opportunities he has offered. Let's consider some examples. I was an inexperienced priest in a large ward. My bishop called me on the phone one Sunday afternoon. When I answered, he said, Do you have time to go with me? I need your help. He explained only that he wanted me to go as his companion to visit a woman I did not know who was without food and who needed to learn how to manage her finances better. Now, I knew he had two seasoned counselors in his bishopric. Both were mature men of great experience. One counselor was the owner of a large business who later became a mission president and a general authority. The other counselor was a prominent judge in the city. I was the bishop's newly called first assistant in the priest corps. He knew that I understood little about welfare principles. I knew even less about financial management by a person. I had not yet written a check. I had no bank account. I had even, I don't think, ever seen a personal budget. Yet despite my inexperience, I sensed that he was deadly serious when he said, I need your help. I have come to understand what that inspired bishop meant. He saw in me a golden opportunity to prepare a priesthood holder. I am sure that he did not foresee in that untrained boy a future member of the presiding bishopric. But he treated me that day and all the days I knew him over the years as a preparation project of great promise. He seemed to enjoy it, but it was work for him. On our return to my home after we visited the widow in need, he parked the car. He opened his well-worn and heavenly, heavily marked scriptures, and he gave me kindly correction. He told me that I needed to study the scriptures and learn more. But he must have seen that I was weak and simple enough to be teachable. To this day, I remember what he taught that afternoon. But even more, I remember how confident he was that I could learn and be better, and that I would. He saw beyond the reality who I was to the possibilities that lie inside someone who feels weak and simple enough to want the Lord's help and to believe that it will come. Bishops, mission presidents, and fathers can choose to act on those possibilities. I saw it happen recently in a fast meeting as a deacon's quorum president bore his testimony. He was about to become a teacher and leave his quorum members behind him. He testified with great feeling in his voice of the growth in goodness and power in the members of his quorum. I've never heard a person praise an organization more wonderfully than he did. He praised their service. And then he said that he knew that he had been able to help the new deacons when they felt overwhelmed because he had felt overwhelmed when he came into the priesthood. His feelings of weakness 
had made him more patient, more sympathetic, and therefore better able to strengthen and serve others. In those two years in the Aaronic Priesthood, it seemed to me he had become seasoned and wise. He had learned that he, he was helped as the quorum president by a clear and vivid memory of his own needs when he was two years younger. His challenge in the future in his leadership and ours will come when such memories fade and grow dim through time and our success. Paul must have seen that danger in counsel to his younger companion in the priesthood, Timothy. He encouraged and instructed him in his own priesthood preparation and in helping the Lord prepare others. This is a scripture now that you will have heard three times today if you've been paying attention. Always remember when you hear something repeated, it's not boredom, it's inspiration. Because the fact is, if I was told to do this again, it must matter. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy, his younger companion. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul gave good counsel for all of us. Don't worry about how inexperienced you are or you think you are. But think about what, with the Lord's help, you can become. The doctrine that Paul urges us to feast upon in our priesthood preparation is the words of Christ, and so to qualify for the receipt of the Holy Ghost. Then we can know what the Lord would have us do in our service and receive the courage to do it, whatever difficulty we face in the future. We are being prepared for priesthood service that will become more challenging with time. For instance, our muscles and our brains age as we do. Our capacity to learn and remember what we have read will diminish. To give the priesthood service the Lord expects of us will take more and more self-discipline every day of our lives. We can be prepared for that test by building faith through service as we go. The Lord has given us the opportunity to prepare by something He has called the oath and covenant of the priesthood. It is a covenant we make with God to keep all His commandments and give service as He would give it if He were personally present. Living up to that standard as best we can builds the strength we will need to endure to the end. Great priesthood trainers have shown me how to build that strength. It is to form a habit of pushing on through fatigue and fear that might make you think of quitting. The Lord's great mentors have shown me that spiritual staying power comes from working past the point when others would have taken a rest. 
you great priesthood leaders who have built that spiritual strength in your youth still possess it when physical strength weakens. My younger brother was in a small Utah city on business. He got a phone call at his hotel from President Spencer W. Kimball. It was late at night after what was a hard day of work for my brother and surely for President Kimball. He began the conversation this way. He said, I heard that you were in town. I know it's late and that you may be in bed, but could you help me? I need you as my companion to see the condition of all our chapels in this city. My brother went with him that night, lacking knowledge of chapel maintenance or anything about chapels and not knowing why President Kimball would be doing such a thing after his long day or why he needed any help. Years later, I received a similar call late at night in a hotel in Japan. I was then the new commissioner of education for the Church. I knew that President Gordon B. Hinckley was staying somewhere in that same hotel on his separate assignment to Japan. I answered the ringing phone just after I had laid down on the bed to sleep, exhausted by having done that all, all I thought, thought I had the strength to do. President Hinckley asked in his pleasant voice, Why are you sleeping? <laughs> when I am here reading a manuscript that we have been asked to review. So I got up and went to work. Even though I knew that President Hinckley could give a better review of a manuscript than I could possibly do, but somehow he made me feel that he needed my help. President Thomas S. Monson, at the end of almost every meeting, asked the Secretary to the First Presidency, Am I up to date on my work? And he always smiles when the answer comes back, Oh, yes, President, you are. <laughs> President Monson's pleased smile sends me a message that makes me think, is there something more I could do on my assignments? And then I go back to my office to work. Great teachers have shown me how to prepare to keep the oath and covenant when time and age will make it harder. They have shown and taught me how to discipline myself to work harder than I thought I could while I still have health and strength. I can't be a perfect servant every hour, but I can try to give more effort than I thought I could. With that habit formed early on, I will be pre prepared for trials later. You and I can be prepared with the strength to keep our oath and covenant through the tests that will sure, surely come as we approach the end of life. I saw evidence of that in a Church Board of Education meeting. President Spencer W. Kimball by then had given years of service while enduring a series of health challenges only Job would understand. He was chairing the meeting that morning. Suddenly, he stopped speaking. He slumped in his chair. His eyes closed. His head fell on his chest. I was seated near him. Elder Holland was next to us. The two of us rose to help him. Inexperienced as we were in emergencies, we decided to carry him, still seated in his chair, to his near, uh, nearby office. I'll tell you, it was a very heavy chair, too. <laughs> he became our teacher 
in that moment of his extremity. With one of us lifting each side of his chair, we went out of the meeting room into the hallway in the church administration building. He half opened his eyes, still dazed, and said, Oh, please be careful. Don't hurt your backs. <laughs> As we got near his office door, he said, Oh, I feel terrible that I interrupted the meeting. Minutes after getting him into his office, still not knowing what his problems were, he looked up at us and said, Don't you think you ought to go back to the meeting? <laughs> we left and hurried back, knowing that somehow our being there must matter to the Lord. President Kimball had since his childhood pushed himself beyond his limits of endurance to serve and to love the Lord. It was a habit so ingrained that it was there when he needed it. He was prepared. And so he was able to teach and show us how to be prepared to keep the oath and covenant by steady preparation over the years through all our strength and what might appear to be little tasks with small consequences. My prayer is that we may keep our priesthood covenants to qualify ourselves for eternal life and those we are called to train. I promise you, if you do all that you can, God will magnify your strength and your wisdom. He will season you. I promise you that those that you train and set an example for will praise your name as I have this day, the great trainers I have known. I testify that God the Father lives and loves you. He knows you. He and His resurrected and glorified Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to an inexperienced boy, Joseph Smith. They trusted him with the restoration of the fullness of the gospel and of the true Church. They encouraged him when he needed it. They let him feel loving chastening when it would bring him down to lift him up. They prepared him, and they are preparing us for the strength to keep working, working toward the celestial glory that is the aim and the reason of all priesthood service. I leave you my blessing that you will be able to recognize the glorious opportunities God has given you in calling and preparing you to His service and the service of others. In the name of our loving leader and teacher, Jesus Christ, amen.